And you've tuned in to another episode of The Wellness Couch, where science and ancient wisdom collaborate, 3ABR 87.6 FM, and we're your host, Katarina and Brett Morrison. Now, let me introduce you to a very special guest tonight, Cindy O'Meara, and Cindy's no stranger to the public. How are you going, Cindy? I'm well, Katrina. Can you hear me? Hello, Cindy. You there? I am, Katrina. Can you hear me? I can just hear you, Cindy. Hi, it's Brett here. How are you going? Hey, good you're Let me quite take my earphones off. Can you hear me now? Yeah, still fairly quiet, unfortunately, but I can I can still hear you. I don't know sure if Kat can hear you yet. We're having some slight technical difficulties in the yeah. here tonight. <laughs> we, we did call in earlier. Sorry, we, darling. Yeah, we we're answering, but you know, obviously you couldn't hear us, so um, I think yeah. it's starting to sort itself out. Can you hear? Yeah, let's let's just get on with okay. it. Of course, Cindy, I've left her there long enough. How are you going, Cindy? Now I'm. Uh, Good. Director of Changing Habits, and and what a great book it is. Uh, Changing Habits philosophy is based on eating um, whole foods and choosing ingredients that are as close as possible to the natural source. It's just like music to my ears at the moment, considering everything that's going on. Um, so, how did you actually um, navigate your path? What's your source of inspiration about uh, changing habits? Well, um, I, uh, 40 years ago, went to the University of Colorado in Boulder and did pre-med because I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted something to do with health. And I took an elective, which was anthropology, and I had the most incredible professor for 12 months. And it just made me realize the importance of food in evolution, in culture, in traditions, in health, in survival, in everything. And so I thought, well, I'll come back to Australia and I'll do my dietetics degree. So I did my Bachelor of Science majoring in nutrition. And um, I did that at Deakin University. And at the end of the Bachelor of Science, I went, well, I don't agree with anything I'm being taught. I don't agree with low fat, margarine, vegetable oils. Um, you know, high carbohydrate diet. It was just, it just didn't make any sense to me. So, I decided not to be a dietitian and um, have just beat beat my own drum as a nutritionist and said, let's eat real foods. Let's get away from all these plastic, fantastic foods. And my guide has always been historical perspective of food, how we um, prepared it, how we ate it, and the other philosophy that I have is the philosophy of vitalism. So looking at a food as a whole instead of one of its parts. So, for instance, butter is taken away from us because it's got saturated fat in it. But what about the other 50% that's in butter? Look at all the omega-3s and the butyric acids and the factor X and all these incredible ingredients within butter um, that surpass anything that any, any science has actually, it's been debunked that saturated fat causes heart disease. So that's my inspiration was um, it was that incredible professor 40 years ago. What an inspiration. And, and actually, fact, I'm glad that you're bringing up the, um, the food, um, Tally, because like, for example, butter rather than margarine um, is a lot better for us. Now, margarine, I mean, all that hydrolyzed fat um, and uh, uh, what's been done to it. Then you've got uh, unrefined sugar rather than um, an artificial sweetener or wheat-based dextrose, which... Um, you know, is not fantastic for our health. Um, no. It seems yeah. like a lot of our diet has just been shaped by convenience. It's been shaped by industry. Yep. The industry um, has backed the science. The science has then backed the industry. And it's been a, you know, a financial um, ride for both of them. 
and in my way of thinking is that when I look at science, so you know, back in the 1980s when I was doing nutrition at um, the at Deakin University, you know, I would I would see something that would say, "Oh, margarine's better than butter," and, and my thing would be mm. straight away. But we've only been eating margarine since the 1920s, yeah. and then it was a cheap version of butter. Then you know, it morphed from being a a product that produced soap and candles to Crisco to pink and yellow margarine to something that's good for us to cholesterol lowering to then in 2009 something that we went, oh, sorry, we've made a mistake. It's got trans fats in it. It's not good for us. (laughs) And so then they had to change the formula, but they haven't told you what the new formulation is. And, And by the way, if you go to the shop now, you can't find margarine because the formulation for margarine is uh, hydrogenation of a vegetable oil. The formulation of a vegetable fat or Olivio, all of those ones that you see, is interferification. Oh, good grief. That's actually really quite scary, actually. Yeah. Like, the thing is, is it, it doesn't have to be scary. you just got to go, what have we been eating? Like my professor always said, if we haven't been eating it for ten to 15,000 years, don't touch it. So all these no, newfangled yeah. additives, preservatives and flavorings and synthetic biology, that's the scariest of all. And yeah. nobody knows they're eating it. No. And like the hydrogenated oils like you mentioned, um, you know, even the, the Harvard School of Public Health says that um, there is a high risk of cardiovascular disease. It increases by 23% for every... 2% increase in calories from those uh, trans fats that are consumed every day. So, um, mm. And the trans fats are partially hydrogenated oils, haven't they? And they've been linked to the heart problems such as heart disease and obesity. Yes, they definitely have. And then we just take the vegetable that hasn't even been hydrogenated. Oh. So what hydrogenation means for those people that are not sure what it is, it just means we're adding hydrogen to the bonds of the fatty acid chain, which is a carbon bond or a carbon chain, and it saturates it. So while on one end they're saying, oh, saturated fat's bad for you, they're actually saturating the oil so Mm. that it's solid at room temperature. But then let's take the quality of the oil that they're using. They're using genetically modified maybe canola oil, soybean oil. They're using genetically modified corn oil. You know, they've got grapeseed oil. They've got all these highly refined, solvent-extracted oils. Uh, and, you know, some of them say, oh, we use olive oil. But I've even seen um, recently there's fraud in olive oil now. That, um, and it's been in the financial, um, throughout the financial books that people are putting in refined oils and only having 10% olive oil and calling it olive oil. I so I don't trust any of it anymore. I am very much a local buyer. I have um, olive trees and avocado trees that are... Um, Yes. Grown around me and they press their own avocado and their own olive and they're the ones that I purchase now because I want to know that these guys, and I think if everybody came to this, if we all started to buy from our local farmers and our local people, I think we'd be far better off in our health. Our land would be better off because these farmers care for the land. And so when we start to care for the land, we get better nutrition in our food. We become healthier human beings. We think better, and the world probably wouldn't be in the place we're in if we we started to do this type of stuff. No. Now I love your source of passion. Obviously, you've got a, a book called Changing Habits, and you've got a new one, um, Plate to Table, haven't you? That's coming out, it's, and it's, it's a great source of um, inspiration for practitioners and uh, the public alike. It's fantastic. Yeah. Now, um, 
Ingredients are important, obviously, in your kitchen repertoire. What about the usage of kitchen utensils in the um, progression of overall health? Yeah, so a lot of people buy these non-stick pans um, or they'll use plastic. Um, and I am very much against all of those because we know, you know, there's so many um, lawsuits going on in America at the moment with DuPont who created Teflon. Yeah, yeah. Um, and all of those chemicals are just in the water supply and it's killing people. And when you heat that um, or you scratch it, you're eating Teflon and it's not good for your health. So that's, that's one thing. Packaging, like um, Glad Wrap, or I shouldn't say Glad Wrap, yeah, but Cling yeah, Wrap. Yeah. You know, all of these ones... Um, what they're putting on them, so um, and foils, they might could yeah. be yeah tin foil because it's got aluminium and aluminium is the most ubiquitous um, mineral on the planet, but it's not necessarily needed for human health. Um, and there's a really there's an amazing professor by the name of Chris Exley, and he's just about to bring a book out on aluminium and aluminium toxicity, and just saying you know. If you don't need it, don't use it, you know. So start using stainless steel and glass and um, wood and and silicon. I haven't seen anything bad on silicon at this, at this point. No, no. In actual fact, silicon's good in that it attracts aluminium and pushes it through the system. You'll be able to just push it through the body system if it's toxic in your, um, in your foods. Yes, amazing. Now... Um one of the, um, I guess, progressions to health or, or basic necessity to health progression, and you've made a movie out of this, is um, is what's with wheat? Yes. So what do you say about removing processed grains and sugar from, from the diet? Oh, you know, like we've... It, grains have probably been in the diet for 100,000 years, and, and we, we do know that the Australian Aboriginal people have used grain in their diet for as long as they've been on this continent. And, you know, there's argument whether it was 45,000 years, 65,000 years or 110,000 years. It doesn't really matter. They've been using grain. Preparation of the grain, how it's grown, was always very important. But these days, we put no thought into the agricultural practices of our grains and our legumes. In actual fact, more and more Roundup and glyphosate is being used desiccate which means dry mm. many of our grains and many of our legumes so what that happens is just before harvest like two three weeks before harvest depending on what part of the country of australia or the world you're in um if it's a bit moist and the, the whole crop hasn't dried out they'll spray it with roundup or some glyphosate containing um herbicide and basically kill the grain but it dries it out before it kills yeah. it and then they'll mm. put it into harvest so this glyphosate is then within um, our grains our legumes and what i'm noticing and i've been in this game 40 years so you know when i first started i noticed that if i was to help somebody and they were on the typical australian diet which i call the sad diet standard australian diet I just had to get them on real foods. I just yeah. had to take them off the plastic fantastic foods and get them on real foods. Now, there are so many gut issues. In actual fact, in the US, they've noted there is that 78% of the population have a gut problem. I don't know what the Australian statistics are. I haven't seen it. But by the people that I see and, and, the, and who I hear from, I am hearing more and more and more children, teenagers, young adults and the elderly, all with gut issues. So glyphosate has the ability 
to kill our microbiome. It is a painted antibiotic. So they're doing it to wheat. We don't know, you know, the, all the wheat that is, is grown goes into silos. So even wheat that hasn't been sprayed with glyphosate may have been preceded with Roundup or glyphosate. And then it will be contaminated in the silo with other grains that have been sprayed with glyphosate. So I, I, you know, I always was able to eat wheat. I had no problems with it. And then around the age of 50, I started to blow up, basically. I started to put on weight, get aches and pains and migraines and hair that wouldn't grow and skin that was dry. Classic symptoms, yeah. Yeah. And I thought, what is wrong? And I just, I did an elimination diet, came back to wheat all the symptoms came back. So that's when I went on a little bit of a, um, I guess, a, a binge of research. And um, then I, I created the documentary, What's With Wheat? Because what I found out, I, I was just absolutely blown away. And I thought that the world needed to know this information because otherwise people are just going to continue to eat pasta and wheat-based products like breads and crackers and cookies. And and everything seems to have wheat in it these days. And yeah, that, and as you mentioned, that the farming practices have shifted significantly from, like, in the last two hundred years, haven't they? Like, wheat farms were traditionally uh, manageable by by a family, but now we're talking massive farms and the conglomerates and the twenty, thirty thousand acres, and they've got silos that they're, they're storing their wheat for you know a couple of seasons, depending on the global price. And that's not just in Australia; that's around around the world too, isn't it? So the practices have changed significantly. The herbicides, the pesticides have changed significantly as well. And I guess the wheat themselves has changed through genetically modif- being genetically modified as well. Yeah, the, the, um, wheat, they're, they're starting to do a genetically modified wheat, but they have not genetically modified it yet. There are the main products are soya and canola and alfalfa, um, some um, cool. potatoes. Yeah. So yeah. there are some foods, but as far as I know in Australia, there's no genetically modified wheat, but that doesn't stop them from, from spraying Roundup on it. So most... Yeah genetically modified foods are Roundup ready, which means mm. we can spray as much Roundup on yeah. it we, as we want and it won't kill the plant. But wheat is not Roundup ready wheat. So when you do spray it on, it actually kills the plant, dries it ready for harvest. Yeah, okay. yeah. so uh, you get a bigger yield. Now, glyphosate's a yeah. popular herbicide and it's used to kill, like you said, plants and grasses and manage how plants grow and get the crops ready for harvest and ripen. But it's been in the news, like in the last few years, you know, um, particularly recently because of concerns about health risks. Now, we've had it sprayed on what golf courses, on children's playgrounds, um, you know, obviously on our fruit and vegetables. What's going on with Australia? Because, I mean, it's banned in some overseas countries. Yeah, and they're, they're phasing it out in other countries. And if you go in and Google it and just go glyphosate banned, what countries, and you'll see what is happening and the succession that's happening that, you know, Mexico said by 2022, I think it is, and so on. But I, um, APVMA, right, the Australian Pesticide and Veterinary Medicine Authority, are the ones that register products here in Australia. So they will register all um, the chemical products and veterinary medicine. So they have registered 596 glyphosate-containing products with, you know, like with glyphosate. So, and they can can be Weedmaster or Roundup and you don't know what they are. You've just got to see that that's the active ingredient. And even with all the information that's coming out at the moment that it's a, you know, class 2A um, cancer carcinogen, that it 
it causes decimation of the microbiome, that it causes the destruction of the shikimate pathway, which makes yeah. which makes amino acids, that it stops minerals being taken up by plants. It, um, it's a chelating agent because that's where it started back in the 60s as a chelating agent. The Monsanto, who was the maker of it, has been, it's been shown in the courts in the US that they lied about the research and that they um, did everything in their power to stop people that were whistleblowing. And these are people like Carrie Gillum, who wrote the book yeah. Whitewash, also Dr. Don Huber, who's a plant pathologist of 50 years, who wrote the USDA and said there's something happening to our animals and it's the ones that are eating these glyphosate um, or the genetically modified um, foods and grains that have been sprayed with glyphosate and his belief it was the glyphosate. Like, it's just the blind eye that the Australian Pesticide and Veterinary Medicine Authority are, are, uh, are pulling on this product is not surprising, really, because that's their payment. They are paid for registering all, all, all their medicines and all their pesticides and herbicides, they are paid to register it. They're paid an annual fee and they're paid um, also for how much is sold wholesale in the country. So if there's billions of dollars being sold of glyphosate-containing products in the country because everybody thinks it's safe, then they get a percentage of those takings. So that's their funding. And so you kind of go, oh, okay, well... Let, and then, and then I've, I've asked them, you know, could we look at the evidence? Could we stop doing... It can at least reduce the amount of registration. Um, and they said that they are guided by... I can't remember who they were guided by. Mm -hmm. Anyway, they were guided by somebody and that they weren't changing. So, you know, we as consumers have power. We... We as consumers should not purchase products that have glyphosate in it, number one, should not purchase food that has been sprayed before seeding or, um, you know, before harvest or genetically modified foods that have got that on there, then we as consumers become powerful beyond our wildest dreams yeah, that we powerful. will turn what is happening at the moment in Australia. Now, I liken the soil, the regeneration of our soil to our microbiome too. So can that be affecting the microbes in the soil? We Most definitely. Yeah, it's yeah. sterilising the soil. Yeah. And in agricultural college, they actually say it's great to destroy the ecology of the soil because <sighs> then they know what kind of input they need to put into the soil to make that plant grow. So NPK, um, you know, they, they're happy to kill it because then it doesn't confuse their chemical analysis of how they should be growing food. Oh but there is a growing number of yeah. <laughs> incredible people out there, Charles Massey who wrote the book Call of the Reed Warbler, Charlie Arnott who um, runs a regenerative farm, yes. RCS, Terry McCosker. Look, these are incredible farmers that are, are whistleblowing and saying, we need to do something, we need to care for our land. And I think most farmers really do care for their land, but they've been given the wrong advice. Yes, yes, most definitely. So, yeah, what I love seeing is, is this groundswell that's happening. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, 40 years I've been in this and in, in, in agriculture I've probably been really watching it 10 years, even though I'm from a very big farming family, but really watching it in the last 10 years. And it's growing and it's beautiful to watch. That, can we just go back to the shikimate pathway for a moment? Because that becomes very important with glyphosate because you've got a mood connection coming on here, but you've also got um, a lot of precursors that are, I guess, destroyed or affected. And... Um, 
we're seeing issues like fructose malabsorption and um, even T3 or T4 or thyroid issues as well. I mean, there's a swarm of thyroid issues um, in the last few years that are obviously affected. And um, can we put it down to um, perhaps glyphosate affecting that, that pathway? Well, Dr. Stephanie Sneff, who I believe has done a lot of research along with um, Anthony Samfell, you know, when you look at their research and on the shikimate pathway um, and on liver enzymes, and then they do association studies, and then from those association studies, they then do scientific studies to see whether that association makes sense. And the associations that they were saying was an increase, with the increase in use of glyphosate on our foods, and by the way, in Australia, 70 foods have been uh, okay to have glyphosate either sprayed on them, around them, near them, preceding them. So 70 of our foods have it on there. So there has been a big increase in the amount of this chemical in our waterways, in our food supplies, um, in our rain, in everywhere. So... What they did was they did an association, and that association, um, they saw an increase in Parkinson's disease, in cancers, cancers in yeah. autism, in so many of liver these diseases. Kidney, yeah. uh, liver and well. kidney, yeah, and reproductive yep. and developmental issues as well. Exactly. And then the shikimate pathway um, is not performed by humans, but it's performed by the bacteria in our gut, um, which we live symbiotically with, and they create metabolites for us. And the shikimate pathway uses fructose um, as the input into it. So if you don't have these bacteria, your fructose will end up in your gut and cause fructose malabsorption, so into the large intestine. But if you've got bacteria that can use it, they, with the shikimate pathway, will produce tyrosine, tryptophan, and phenylalanine. These are three amino acids that are precursors. Essential amino acids, yeah, yeah, essential ones too. Yeah. To our neurotransmitters. So now we have nervous system problems such as MS, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, dementia, all increasing. We also have um, autism increasing, increasing, yeah, and depression, mental illness, and like I think it's one in four people have a, a mental illness. Jeez, um, wow. And our children, the autism statistics are one in because um, I get America and Australia sometimes confused. I'm not sure if it's one in. 38 or 1 in 78, it doesn't really matter. It's pretty close. It used to be 1 in 40,000 and then 1 in 10,000. So um, so it also produces folic acid, um, coenzyme oh, Q10. okay. Yep. So we're taking an issue with the methylation pathway. So we're, I mean, all practitioners are big on MTHFR at the moment So and the methanine pathway. Um, so that obviously is going to affect a lot of people with that gene malfunction. Yes. Definitely, because they don't... They don't have the folic acid. And so in the wisdom of Fasans, they started to make it mandatory to put, I think it was 2009, to put folic acid into our wheat and into our bread. Um, But there are 30% of the population that cannot use that folic acid because they don't have the ability to translate it into folate, which is the active formulation of folic acid. And so it's just... I feel like we, we're we not getting to the root cause of the issue. The other thing that's really interesting that the shikimate pathway makes is enterobactin. So enterobactin is an iron carrier. Mm. And, it's, um, wow. and when you have a look at the amount of people with 
iron issues at the moment. Either yes. they've got too much iron or not enough iron. And I wonder if that's got something to do with it too. So, look, I just love reading the research um, and learning about, you know, what's happening and then making a stand that I'm not purchasing products um, or anything that um, could harm myself or my family or our animals um, because I have animals. I have, you know, cattle and chickens and dogs and... um, I did have a cat, but he passed away oh, at 17. Oh, so, you know, and, and he died of lymphoma, though. Oh, but no. this is what blows me away. He, blo- he died of lymphoma. And we know that non-Hodgkin's lymphoma um, is, is, I think there's 120,000 people with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that has been associated with glyphosate that's now in the, in the courts in the USA. And in Australia, I'm not sure of the number, but I do know that there's... Uh, they call it farmer's cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Yes, yeah. Mm. Now, look, so it's pretty obvious then that, um, you know, gluten can possess um, to be an issue. We don't know if it's gluten or glyphosate at the moment, but, I mean, obviously if you have an autoimmune, uh, autoimmune disease or any inflammatory condition, then you probably shouldn't be eating um, gluten regardless. It could be the Gladian or it could be the glyphosate that they're actually using unless you want to continue to feel unwell. What about organic products? Well, well, I was eating organic wheat. I was actually eating organic wheat. I made all my own breads. Um, I bought organic uh, pasta. So it wasn't like I was eating a bread that wasn't organic. So I was even finding the same thing. Now, was that because of the amount of glyphosate that was destroying the microbiome um, and I couldn't tolerate it anymore? I don't know. But my belief, for me... I just went off it completely. I just went, I don't need organic. I don't need fermented. I don't need any of it. I've been off it nearly, you know, 10 years now. I feel amazing. Fantastic. Um, But if I eat it, I will feel the effects. But it's less and less as the years go by. At first, my sore back had come back. My sore hip had come back. My aches and pains had come back now. And then it got down to my little finger would hurt. And now I don't see any symptoms. But I'm not prepared to go back there. So I've, I've chosen, and a lot of people will be going, oh, my gosh, how can you live without wheat? But yeah. there's so many other foods out there, and it, it, and when it, it means that you feel so much better. And I hear way too many people say, oh, if you're not diagnosed celiac, you can eat wheat. Well, but what if you went off wheat for five weeks or four weeks and you feel incredible, and then you go back to it and you feel bad, but then your doctor or your dietitian says, well, you don't have celiac, so you can eat it. That's it doesn't interesting. Make any sense yeah. to me. That's interesting yeah. you say that because some people who are gluten intolerant or celiac remove all sources of gluten from their diet and yet they still may continue to feel unwell. And um, can you talk about what we call cross reactivity in relationship to our health? I mean, it doesn't happen to all individuals, but it can happen. No. And obviously, many foods mimic the effects of gluten. Yeah. And there's, um, there's a really good list. Um, that you can see if you go to Cyrex Labs and look at cross-reactivity and they show you the whole list of it. And it it means that there might be a strand of um, amino acids that is similar to what's in gliadin and the, the body sees it as a molecular mimicry and may react to coffee or cocoa or quinoa or... And I, I can't remember them all now. I do, because I had a patient today. Um, it's oh. uh, dairy, potato, um, instant coffee, yeast, rice, corn, millet, milk chocolate, oats and soy. And there's, oh, you're right, there is a whole list. But yeah. um, 
Yeah. Um, yeah, so the body says it's like a molecular mimicry and um, and so you have to be a bit, a very, very careful of those as well. So if, if you're still not well, then you look at those, those products as well. But the aim is to fix the gut, to start eating real food. Yeah, perfect. To eat broth, to have fermented foods, um, not so much probiotic, but the whole food, the whole probiotic, and going back to the real food diet, eliminating them, feeling better, and then starting to introduce them back into the diet again. And and people know if they just have to start listening to their body. People have stopped listening to their body. They take a pill to get rid of the pain, the inflammation, the indigestion. But when you listen to your body and you go, oh, what did I just eat to give me indigestion or why am I okay this morning? What did I eat last night? What if something contaminated? Nobody's asking those questions. They just go, oh, I don't feel well. I'm just going to take, uh, you know, I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just take whatever I want, you know, and um, make myself feel better and keep eating it. It just makes no sense because then you've got to take Yeah, so it's, I guess it comes down to that convenience, isn't it? Like people have a lifestyle, they get into a routine and sometimes it can be hard to change those patterns, can't it? Yeah, and I, and I have seen this. I've seen people in the biggest crisis of their life and they don't want to change. But that's okay, yeah. that's their choice. Yeah. But what, I, what I'm trying to get to is people that are open to suggestion that, you know, we've got the people that have changed and you guys obviously know this stuff and maybe your listeners know this stuff but what we are trying to get to is those people that are open to suggestion that they're not doing this stuff but they're looking and they're searching and they know there's something else other than taking a drug and not dealing with it but they don't know where it is yeah yeah so your program allows people to come in and listen and go oh that makes sense oh maybe i should do this who do I need to go to? Where do I need to go? So my, and I would say your audience, are people who are open to suggestions yes, who are wanting definitely. to learn yeah. and make changes in their life, and we're here for you as you are there for them. You know, um, we've got a little bit of knowledge, but um, you know, the average person doesn't know where the places where wheat is actually found in their lives, and it's actually everywhere. The rise of wheat modification is all around us. You know, you've got it in your medications, you've got it um, in other food sources, in other processed foods, um, like even the ascorbic acid, isn't it? Is is a uh, byproduct of um, wheat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and a lot of people don't know that. So, I mean, can we ever really get away from it? Well, if you choose to grow, maybe. Um, something in your garden so for me I grow all my greens tomatoes sweet potatoes and it, it started little just started as a little pot and then I went oh I've got a little bit more land maybe I could throw a sweet potato thing in there and all of a sudden I've got this plot of sweet potatoes so when you start to take control of your food and you start growing your own food and you start eating basically again so you you might go back to um, like something I have for breakfast is cater. So it stands for coconut, almond, date, and apple. Oh, and I'll just, yeah, I'll just chop it all up and put some beautiful yogurt on it um, that I make. I make my own. Um, and people are going, oh, my gosh, you know, she can do all this stuff. But it's only because I'm in a routine. Mm. You start small. You start with little things. So that's what I would have for breakfast. Or I might have an omelette. If um, and I've got chicken, so I'm able to go out and get the eggs. And I'll make an omelette. For lunch, I go out and pick my greens. I go out with a, a piece of 
system scissors and I cut my greens and I cut all the herbs and I, I make up greens, throw a few tomatoes in and then I've got leftover meat from the night before. I'll chop that up. I've already made mayonnaise and pesto. Throw that on top. But I can be ready to go out the door with breakfast and lunch in my esky um, in 10 minutes. Fantastic. Because of just a little bit of prep. Then I come home at night so and I'll, I'll decide, you know, what are we having? Is it fish? Is it chicken? Is it meat? Is it egg? We always have a protein. We are not vegan and we are not vegetarian. Um, and so then we'll have um, vegetables and I go out and I pick my salad again. And it's boring, you might think. Actually not. I think it's the <laughs> ultimate rebellion, actually. I think it's what we needed <laughs> right now. It's a movement that's actually required right now in order to retrieve back our health. I really do. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. So simple, it's a simple steps, isn't it? Like I know I went vegetarian uh, a little while ago and I just started with, with one with one meal. Uh, I remember listening to Rich Roll on his podcast and he's he's got a very popular podcast and he said just just pick one meal that you know that you can control. And so I started with breakfast. Um, and like that can be the same, can't it? So he said you start with one little vegetable that you're growing and then you start with the second vegetable and then you start growing multiple vegetables either in pots or into a little garden plot and you start from there. And, you know, it's kind of obsessive. Yeah, it is. Because you know, it really is weird because, like, I'll go to the grocery store and I'll see that... Um, so I go to my local IGA in Mullaney and they always have a plot of, I don't know, herbs yeah, know and that. vegetables. <laughs> and I get become obsessive and I go, oh, I haven't got that. I'll take that. I'll go that. And then you go home and you just throw it in the ground... And it's serious. I throw. I have got. Uh, I call it. I, I stab things. <laughs> <laughs> well, anything grows up in Mullaney, though. That's yeah. the thing. I, yeah, I, I come yeah, from Nambour, oh, yeah. so yeah, yeah. Look, everything grows up there. It's just incredible. Yeah. But it it started as a little thing, and then another thing, and then another thing, and then I bought because my farm's in Mullaney, <laughs> but it. my house is in Malolaba. Beautiful. So yeah. I come oh, wow, back okay. to the house, yeah. and I go oh, I need to start growing here. So now I'm growing corn and watermelon and cauliflower and I've got all my herbs. I've got, um, I just keep planting. My husband goes, we've got no room for anything else. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. I love it. So it's really obvious and knowing where the source of your food comes from is imperative. Like, um, you know, I always say hold the pesticide, but... Certified organically grown produce is not just ideal, but essential based on the plethora of information that's coming out, obviously, about the harmful carcinogens like glyphosate and um, uh, insecticides and herbicides that they're actually using too. Um, Tell me the, like, or tell the audience, you know, why organic is actually so important, so much better nutritionally um, for them. Well, I, I, um, I'm actually a regenerative farmer more than an organic farmer. I'm not certified organic. And let me give you a distinction between those two. So organic is certified in Australia and they are allowed to use some chemicals but not other chemicals. They... Um, and this isn't all, but this is just telling you what the regulations are. If you go and buy a packet of organic chips, you're going to see 5% of the ingredients in there that are absolute crap. And I'm absolutely, I get really angry with the organic movement that is happening. I love it. I have this love-hate relationship. I yeah. love it because it's, it's opening people's eyes. But I don't like it because it's got loopholes. Yeah. So. 
But to buy organic is expensive. To buy certified organic is expensive. I'm a certified organic food producer when it comes to my packaged foods that I um, sell through Changing Habits. But my farm isn't. I'm a regenerative farmer when it comes to that. So what does that mean? That means that I use animals and plants in order to um, produce an ecology in the soil. So my main aim is that I want to know that my soil ecology is as good as my gut microbiome because that soil ecology is what will make sure my, my animals are strong so that I don't have to use tick sprays or yeah. parasite sprays so that's the, my main my main aim is to make sure my soil has an incredible course, base yeah i want to sequester carbon because that's what it does because Fantastic, that's when i yeah. know it's healthy and i also want to hold water well, so any water that's running off is a land that has a poor ecology so i sequester carbon I hold water. Fantastic. From there, I grow incredible grasses, incredible fruit trees, incredible vegetables. And if I do get aphids, I cut them down and throw them to the chickens. And the chickens love them. And if and so I get the chickens in there. And like it's like this. And it's not about sustainability because if we sustain what we've got right now, we're in trouble. What we want to do is we want to regenerate. So I'm all for the small farmer that's doing this it's not certified organic but has a passion for what he's doing Mm. or she's doing and i will buy from them i will go to the farmer's markets if i haven't aren't growing it myself yeah great yeah local farmer's markets and i will speak to the the vendors and i'll say are you growing your food and if they say no i'll move on if they say yes we are i'll say okay tell me your practices and the minute they start saying key words I'm hooked. Yeah. <laughs> I'm there. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> it's like the minute they say hello, I'm there. <laughs> now you talk about um, sequestering um, carbon in soil. Now we just watched that movie. What was it called? What's with soil? No, that's mm. what's with wheat. It, it was. Was it your son that did it? It was. Um, it was a soil movie, and it talked about uh, how how soil was so important in. Um, sequestering yeah that's it sorry kiss the ground yeah sequestering um carbon and it's just amazing because everyone talks about trees um taking in the carbon but uh yeah it was imperative that we look after our soil and regenerate it to actually um sequester the carbon yes if our soils are rich in ecology uh and they they have all the right things that we know soil needs. And it's a communication system that, you know, the trees can communicate with each other hundreds of miles away. Um, everything communicates in the soil. It's a, it's a soil-based communication. When that is working at its peak, the soil will hold water and the soil will sequester carbon. And I'm doing my part with my 60 acres. I know it's not a lot. Fantastic. But, you know, you've got... Charlie Arnott, Charles Massey, RCS, Terry yeah. McCosco, mm-hmm. all of his crew, they're all starting to do it. And there's a movement in the US, in Europe, New Zealand, it's, it, uh, South Africa, Africa, Australia. It's happening. And, yeah, that's our aim. In regenerative farming is to make sure the soil's good. If the soil's good, the plant's good. If the plant's good, the animal's good. If so, the animal's good, the animal course, then puts... Yeah stuff back into the soil and it becomes this beautiful cycle and yeah that's what we do on our farm um and i i i just can tell you how good it feels to be able to go out and just pick your food and um know where it's come from yeah and then if i have to buy things that i can't buy in my local area such as like salts 
because I can't buy salt here. Um, I have to bring it in from somewhere else. Although I could, I guess, get a bucket in the ocean and, you know, dehydrate <laughs> my ocean water. I could do that, yeah. but I just that's one thing I haven't quite got to yet. So, you know, things like that, nuts. If I can't, I can't get walnuts up here, and I'm a walnut freak, so I have to get them from Victoria. So I will. Um, I know a walnut grower who lives near Bright. I'll, you know, go down there sometimes. Or now I have to ask him to send them up at the end of winter. So you know, these are things we do. Otherwise, I'll grow macadamia and pecans and oh, and yum. peanuts. Yum! How you beautiful! That yeah, is, yeah. That's just absolutely. Um, now, we've got um, a few harmful foods. How do people actually find out, like, information? Like, obviously, it's not on the label. Like, um, corporations are fantastic at hiding their, you know, what they do to their food. And, in fact, they actually modify their food so it's more nutri- um, more appealing to the taste buds. Yes. <laughs> and they modify it in many ways. So, um, with additives, you know, they put in um, – they'll put in – um, colours and well colours don't add flavour but they add to the look but colours and flavours and acidity regulators and gua- and gums and thickness and stabilisers and, and all of these ingredients they add to it to make a food look like food, taste like food um, and, and even smell like food but not be food and this is scary because they're becoming absolute artists at this yes yeah. and, and like I was at the butcher today uh, and Somebody suggested, I, I always go a fair way um, to my butcher if I haven't um, done a killer. And I, I find it really hard to kill my cows because I fall in love with them. Yeah, you're so I, yeah, yeah, I have a hard time. I do fall in love with my cows and I have to get over it, but I, I just do that. So I actually end up um, usually buying from a, a local producer down the road because I don't know his cows. So anyway, I know this sounds weird, but anyway, I was in this butcher and somebody said, Cindy, look, here's a butcher that's close to you. You should try them. They do grass-fed, organic, blah, blah, blah. So I walk in there and I I ask them questions and they don't have the knowledge. Yeah. And so I'm looking at a roast and I said, what's on that roast? And they said, oh, it's a something, a rosemary something. And I said, oh, can I see the ingredients for that? So they bring out this big barrel. Oh. And they show me the ingredients and I see MSG and I see oh, colour no. and I see... Yeah. And I just, I go, well, you know, this is, this is why we have to start asking questions to our butchers, to our fruit mongers, our vegetable suppliers, who's supplying our nuts, seeds. If we start to ask the question, you know, I'm sure I walked out of that butcher shop and they were all rolling their eyes at me. <laughs> <laughs> at least I'm sure of happy. it. Yeah. But I don't care. I actually don't care because hopefully I've tweaked to them because I said to them straight up, oh, my God, there's MSG and colour in there. No, thanks. <laughs> you know. Yeah, so it spoils a whole organic fi- 